Does your organisation create social change or aspire to? Are you ready to take your work to the next level? Spark Strategy is an agency for strategic thinking, transformation and sustained action. Bringing together ideas, capability and capital, Spark helps the not-for-profit, government, corporate and philanthropic sectors with strategic planning, sustainable business model design and government engagement to unleash their potential and to transform themselves and the societies in which they work and live. As a certified B Corp, Spark stands for purpose, not just profit. So if you're ready to spark ideas in your organisation, go to sparkstrategy.com.au to find out more. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm chatting to Sean Starr. Sean is an Associate Professor and Assistant Dean at the Jindal Global Law School and the Executive Director at the Centre for India-Australia Studies at OP Jindal Global University. Sean has been working in India since 2010. Running his own advisory practice, Sean has advised numerous organisations, assisting them with their entry and expansion into India. Sean is passionate about promoting the Australia-India relationship and has published a book entitled Australia and India, a Comparative Overview of the Law and Legal Practice. In addition, Sean is the co-founder and chair of the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, a forum which hosts young politicians, entrepreneurs, policymakers and diplomats from Australia and India, and a forum that I had the privilege of being involved in earlier this year. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Okay, so as I mentioned at the end there, you are a co-founder of the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, which is a dialogue that we've touched on a little bit in in recent episodes of the show. So could I start with that? Can you take us back to the origins of the AIYD uh, and and what led you to to launch the dialogue? Certainly, Rachel. This is uh, sort of takes us back almost a decade now. Um, There was a a group of like-minded people all with some kind of connection to India, albeit a different kind of connection. Uh, From my perspective, I had, uh, as I said, about a decade ago, I received a government scholarship uh, to to study in any Asian country. Uh, There were 20 such scholarships given to young Australians, students, or uh, postgraduate and undergraduate students. Uh, And about 80% went to China or Hong Kong, one or two Indonesia and Singapore, and I was the only student who went to India. Uh, And after a number of months in India, I I loved it. I I was having a fantastic time. I was learning so much. In fact, it was my first time in any part of Asia, let alone in India. Uh, And and I thought, you know, more Australians should have similar opportunities. And, and the fact that the vast majority of individuals who received this fellowship chose other countries, perhaps, uh, you know, more common options chosen by young Australians, I, I thought um, 
that we should try to institutionalize uh, these opportunities and, and I guess catalyze uh, these opportunities for young Australians. And, and I, that was part of my motivation. I, uh, I understand you yourself may have met a number of the other co-founders when you were a delegate earlier this year. Uh, a number of them are of Indian origin. Uh, some of them have had extensive business uh, connections or personal ties with India. Uh, and a number of us got together about a decade ago and, uh, and thought, let's institutionalize uh, th these opportunities for young Australians, not only to create a attractive dialogue for young leaders, but also to help build these people-to-people -people links, which, which often grow organically, uh, but can grow perhaps quicker and in a more sustainable manner as well uh, if, if we do institutionalize them. So that was about a decade ago. We have since had eight successful Australia-India Youth Dialogues with 30 young leaders from both countries attending every year. Uh, and, and these young leaders are not just, you know, up-and-coming leaders. These are individuals who are already movers and shakers in their field. So we're talking sometimes Olympic champions, CEOs, media anchors and producers, uh, social innovators, and, and the list goes on. Uh, it, it's quite an impressive uh, group of individuals. And that's why I say it's, it, it's the intention was not just uh, to create a track to dialogue where we're talking about Australia and we're talking about India. It's to create a community of, of individuals who will shape the future of not only the bilateral relationship, but the future of both of our countries as well. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I find what you've said there really interesting that when you accepted your scholarship to India, it wasn't the most popular choice. And I recall back in 2015, I did exchange in India and I was part of the first cohort of Sydney University students to go and study in India. And at the time we went to the Tata Institute and I so vividly recall them saying, you know, this is such a novelty for us. We don't get Australian students here. And it was just a really unlikely choice when everyone else was doing exchange generally in European countries and the degree I did. And I never really understood the reluctance to go to India and I wonder do you, do you think that is still enduring or do you think we've begun to to break down that hesitation? I I think it is still enduring uh, for the majority if I'm honest uh, however there are uh, there has been a paradigm shift away from the traditional US European student exchanges and internships towards shorter-term mobility and shorter-term internship opportunities throughout Asia. I don't necessarily think that that is just India. I think we're talking throughout Asia, so China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia uh, and India, for example. A big part of that has been um, government policy, which, which has been promoting uh, opportunities like the New Colombo Plan, which encourage uh, youngsters to, to go for sometimes three or four weeks to, to immerse themselves in a country for a shorter period of time. So I think um, the longer-term opportunities of uh, young Australians have been reluctant to go into the unknown, if I can call it that. There's a, there's a, a, always has been an ignorance about Asia and about what exists in this part of the world. Uh, and uh, just to give you a, a couple of examples from where I am now at uh, OP Jindal Global University, uh, about four years ago, we started a Centre for India-Australia Studies at the university, and one of our big mandates is to create awareness of 
of Australia and India and, and awareness about India for Australians as well. So about four years ago, when we hosted a, uh, our first India Immersion Program, and there were six students from Perth who did a three-week program to learn about India. Until that time, we had never had a full semester exchange student from Australia, although we had had exchange students from other parts of the world. So, so we're talking four or five months exchange. Um, in the last three or four years, we've grown from six students uh, over three weeks to, uh, to put it in perspective, in January and February uh, in the coming year, in 2020, we'll be hosting two immersion programs with a total of between uh, 80 and 90 students from Australia, the vast majority of which will be New Colombo plan funded. Uh, and we also host about two or three Australian students every semester for a full length exchange. So uh, that signals two things, I think, or I like to think. Uh, one is the paradigm shifts of Australians and the way they're thinking about India and, and Asia uh, to, to go out and experience uh, what are our future superpowers in the neighbourhood, so to speak? And secondly, uh, the, the impact of uh, this institutionalising these opportunities uh, that the government has done in Australia, that um, centres like the Centre for India Australia Studies are doing, like what AIYD is doing for to young Australians as well. The, the awareness is certainly uh, shaping our perspective and perceptions uh, as young Australians. Yeah, certainly. I I agree. And I, I think, if you, as you've said there, anything that helps Australians to change the way we understand Asia uh, and to understand it more immersively is a really powerful thing. And you touched on earlier the value of Track 2 Dialogue. Um, so for anyone that's not familiar with Track 2 Dialogues, can you define what that is and comment on why you think it's important? Oh, look, I'll, I'll define it, so to speak, by, by giving the AOID example. Um, from the, the youth dialogues perspective, we're, we're not talking about uh, ministers or high-level government officials sitting across a table having a formal dialogue. Uh, at the Australia-India Youth Dialogue perspective, uh, as, as I alluded to previously, we have uh, up-and-coming leaders, sometimes well-established leaders, talking about issues that affect both countries, sharing ideas, sharing experiences and, and often offering recommendations and solutions about uh, sustainable ways to solve those problems. Uh, we also, as, as the young leaders, have, have the advantage of interacting with government officials and ministers, and I'm sure from your experience uh, in the AOID earlier, um, you know, those, ex uh, I, I guess, experiences shared by the more senior leaders are invaluable for the next-gen leaders, if I can call them that. So the illustration that I'm trying to give at the moment is that uh, it, it's, it's a group of people, uh, albeit not the current decision-makers at a government-to-government -government level, who are and will shape the future of both of our countries. So uh, sharing ideas, offering suggestions and recommendations of how you know, those challenges can be uh, dealt with in both countries, and at a bilateral level, uh, also discussing how to strengthen and deepen our ties uh, between Australia and India. Yeah, that's a great description of Track 2 Dialogue, and, and in my experience, similar to yours, it is a really 
significant and meaningful way of engaging with government and having a tangible influence on policy. And I think the AROID can really be commended for, for doing that over the last um, over the last nearly decade. Um, so from there, I, I want to talk about the India-Australia relationship more broadly, given you've been living in India for the last 10 years um, and are really familiar with this, I'm eager to get your take on some trends that we've seen. So I think the first one is the end of Australian aid to India and the replacement uh, of that aid with a renewed focus on economic cooperation. So can you give us an account of that and the impact that you think that has had um, on India? Yeah, I think uh, this is really a two-part question. Uh, in that, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about policy decisions to reduce or eliminate foreign aid into India, and on the other hand, a focus on on boosting economic collaboration. So the first part of the uh, the question is interesting because it, in many respects, has stemmed from a policy decision of the Indian government to be an aid exporting country, uh, whereby India certainly does give more aid money uh, to often to its neighboring countries who, who need it and when they need it more than they accept foreign aid. And, and indeed, even in times of crisis in the early 2000s, so floods and, and other natural disasters, uh, foreign countries have offered Indian aid and, and the government has refused to accept it on the premise that they now are in a position to, uh, to look after themselves, for want of a better phrase. Uh, self-sustaining and, and even more than self-sustaining, able to support others than requiring support uh, themselves. So the, the paradigm shift has, has come from where I'm sitting now, I suppose, in an Indian context, uh, more so than the other way around. That being said, uh, it is quite interesting that the Australian government does continue to offer support to uh, NGOs and, and social enterprises doing good work. In, in India and in this part of the world uh, through its direct aid programs uh, and also certainly through philanthropy and, and other private and corporate donations uh, of uh, NGOs and individuals doing good work in, in India and there's no shortage of, of them. Uh, from the economic collab uh, collaboration and cooperation side of things, I think there's a recognition that, that India uh, is yeah, a growing economic superpower. It's, it's been the fastest growing big economy for a long period of time, uh, and it, it's on a on an upward growth trajectory faster than you know the likes of what Australia's been in for for a, a long time. So there's a recognition of the potential uh, in in two way economic trade, so trade and investment for both Australia and India, and I think the likes of the Peter Varghese report, which was recently launched, uh, certainly shows us the intent of Australia to, to boost economic linkages with India and the fact that the Indian government will soon launch uh, a similar report looking at the economic opportunities in Australia shows that this interest in economic cooperation is, is two-way. Yeah, and I'm glad you touched on the Peter Varghese report there because it would be great to come back to that. I think from a broader aid paradigm perspective, it's always a really interesting time for a country. And I think it's a transition that happens, you know, sometimes over the course of a decade or more when a country goes from being a recipient of aid to claiming to 
be able to look after themselves, as as you put it. And, you know, to oversimplify that, that's a really positive step to take. And of course, the end goal of aid is to build that self-empowerment and and uh, you know economic sustainability in a country but i'm i'm interested from your perspective is india ready to stop receiving aid and are they ready to be a donor of aid instead well that's uh, it's always a very very tough question and one that i don't think i'm qualified to be answered i think this is a question for almost for india to determine uh, for itself there are uh, as we know social issues in any country india has social issues that we don't and certainly to the scale that we do not have in australia uh whether it's poverty whether it's education for all um you know the the list can go on um you know that being said there is an incredible amount of wealth in in india and in this part of the world and and there are a number of structural reforms, be it corporate governance or taxation, that are trying to redistribute a lot of this wealth to where it is needed. So I think in short, the answer is yes. And I think there are moves that India is making uh, to make sure you know, that wealth is redistributed to, to those who, who need it. Uh, as I said, there's certainly a, a large amount of of poverty and, and social issues, but the growing middle class and the growing wealth uh, in, in the upper spectrum of the community is, uh, you know, showing that India can and will move, you know, out of, you know, where it has been historically. Um, and, and I think that growing middle class is illustrative of that. But that's not to say that there's a large demographic who need support. And when you don't have a welfare system like we have uh, in Australia that sort of give these individuals who needed a leg up, uh, the government does need to step in at times. Uh, I, I think the Indian government can and is taking steps to, to remedy this. And I don't think that uh, necessarily foreign governments need to, to chime in and support, if that answers your question. It does. It definitely does. And I think before we move off the topic of aid, you mentioned there some of the social issues in India that, that are quite enduring, along with the broader macro level climate of, of not having a strong welfare system in the way that we do in Australia. But you've also noted the capability of the middle and upper classes in India to, to solve some of those challenges. Many issues cannot be solved through foreign aid. And when you think of the most pressing social issues that affect India, what are they? And who are the major players in solving those issues, if not foreign aid? It's a, again, a tough question to answer. And, and I'll, um, I'll start with, with a point that doesn't directly answer your question, and I'll, I'll get to the answer. And that is uh, India's demography, its demographics at the moment are, uh, are much unlike any, well, many other countries in that 50% of its population are under the age of 25. So one needs to look 10, 20 years down the track and consider where will India be and what does India need in 10, 20, 30 years uh, to ensure that its upward growth trajectory continues. Uh, and, and the reason I get to this is because I don't think foreign aid is the solution, but I, I think foreign and international collaboration and cooperation may be a big part of uh, the solution. Uh, And where I'm getting to here is when you've got a majority of a population who are young, 
as I said, 50% are under the age of 25. This, this young population needs to be skilled. They need to be educated. Uh, and of course, there's a, there's a huge demographic dividend. We often hear huge demographic opportunity for India to, to be the superpower that it can be, only if these hundreds of millions of people are educated uh, and can change the shape of India and of the world. On the flip side, if these individuals are underskilled or uneducated, um, there's a huge demographic burden on the system. Uh, and uh, when you've got a sh hundreds of millions of people underemployed or even worse, unemployed, uh, it can be a huge drain on the economy. So the point I'm, I'm getting at there is uh, obviously a big part of these social issues will be education. And we're not just talking, you know, uh, higher education from this perspective, but Australian higher education institutions uh, and even uh, skills-based organisations like TAFEs uh, and even other education providers can uh, can contribute to the India narrative from that perspective and make sure that these hundreds of millions of, of youngsters can contribute to the growth story of India moving forward. Now, let's stay on the topic of education because I agree with you. It's a really important part of this narrative. So you're doing a lot of work with the Centre for India-Australia Studies. Um, can you talk about what the, the mandate of the centre is and, and tell us about the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So the Centre for India-Australia Studies has a, a number of different focal points, uh, one of which is creating an awareness of, of Australia in India, and I'll touch on that first. And the other one which I'll get to is uh, pr promoting and creating an awareness of India to Australians. But on, on the first hand, we, you know, Australia has historically been and perhaps still is today quite insignificant from the Indian perspective. You know, we're talking about a, a populace of 1.3 billion people as opposed to Australia, which has now, if I'm not wrong, about 25 million people. You know, I live in a city right now, Delhi, which has a population exceeding that of Australia. So the scale is 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 really hard to comprehend. And, and Indians, if, you know, they're not aware of the opportunities in Australia uh, and in terms of commercial and research opportunities with Australia, uh, may not or will not explore, you know, such opportunities. And we found um, because perhaps of the diaspora of Indians in the US and the UK and other parts of the world, that the young aspirational Indians who are looking to uh, be further educated, looking for the best opportunities around the world um, for their careers and their education, historically uh, have looked to the US and the UK. Uh, perhaps because of geopolitics and what's happening in the world in in those places, in the US um, politically and in the UK also politically, uh, people are looking elsewhere. So there's certainly been an increase in numbers, uh, student numbers in Australia uh, and places like Canada and other parts of Europe. So I think um, the perception of the quality of educational institutions has increased. Uh, by part because of the, the changing geopolitics and the, the, the way people are seeing other parts of the world. But I also think, and this is an interesting and important part of the narrative, I think Australian educational institutions have been focused on other parts of the world. 
namely China. There's a lot of Chinese students uh, in Australian universities. Um, and Australian educational institutions have historically not invested the resources or the energy in a country like India, which needs a physical presence. It needs to know that, that you are here for the long term to collaborate on research, to collaborate on partnerships, and you're not just here for student numbers. And I think that paradigm in the last, I'll say decade, but certainly five or six years has changed fundamentally. Uh, I've certainly noticed in the last five years or so, the amount of vice chancellors that have come not even once, but multiple times per year to India has been remarkable. Uh, not only that, but Australian universities are setting up shop in India. And when I, when I say setting up shop, I don't mean they're, they're building campuses or having a physical presence from that perspective, but they have a number of people who they employ here often to build partnerships, to, to work with uh, schools and universities and build relationships. Universities uh, are looking more strategically at India, not only just uh, to see dollar signs and student numbers. Of course, that commercial side remains important, but the education relationship is, is become much bigger than that in the mind of many Australian institutions. Uh, so yeah, I, I think we're seeing a paradigm shift there. We've had, for example, Deakin University who's been here for 25 years now, which is always used as a case study, but the fact is that they were the first foreign university to have the, the, foreign, the physical presence that they had in this country by way of building these strategic partnerships. And, and they've, um, you know, reaped their rewards from it. They've built some very strong, tangible partnerships and have a very good brand and presence uh, in this part of the world. So I think, um, you know, building awareness, I digress a little bit from your original uh, question, I think, but uh, these educational institutions, the fact that they themselves are pushing Australia benefits Australia generally and not just the own, their own universities. But coming back to your point, if I, if I may, uh, what, what else is the centre doing from an awareness perspective? We are uh, creating opportunities for Indians in Australia, whether it is these short-term or long-term mobility opportunities. We are bringing hundreds of Australian students and hundreds of Australian academics and business people and policymakers uh, to predominantly to our campus to talk about, not only to talk about Australia, but to showcase the strength of academia, to showcase the strength of policymaking and business acumen in Australia. Because it's exposure to these high quality individuals and opinion leaders that really not only sells Australia as a, as a, you know, a world leader in many respects, but shows people of the strength of potentially studying abroad in Australia for post-graduation studies or working in Australia or working with Australia when they pursue their career, career in India or other parts of the world. Uh, we've also launched an Australia Studies course to teach Indians about Australia, and, and that's been a course at Opijin or Global University, so to learn about Australian culture, society, business, law, uh, and international affairs. And, and that's not just me teaching. There's a number of other Australian academics who teach into that course via virtual classrooms or physically on campus at Jindal Global University. So there's been um, a, a lot of push 
for for this awareness narrative. It's it's about uh, creating an Australian imagination in India, which hasn't historically been there, and that Australian imagination can only really be uh, created here or catalyzed here if there's a physical presence. So that's why we like to work with a lot of our partners uh, in in giving Indian students exposure to the best and brightest in Australia. That answers the first part of the question. If if you give me a, a minute to address the other part uh, very briefly, that the Australian awareness of India um, leaves a lot to be desired. I think when we talk about you know Asia awareness generally, there's a lot of great institutions trying to build Asia capability and Asia awareness, but that's not necessarily India centric. It's it's uh, our discussion is often very China centric. In fact, in Australia, uh, that being said, these programs like the New Colombo Plan and and other scholarships are increasing interest in India and other less traveled parts of Asia. And you know, I feel very privileged that, that we'll have the opportunity to host 80, between 80 and 90 students from nine Australian universities in January and February in 2020, um, having within a short time frame of four years moved from six students to almost 90. Uh, I, I think you know that, that shows the increase in interest. But you know, getting students here is one thing. Uh, explaining the Indian story is, is another. Uh, a lot of the media that we receive or read about in Australia is, is not often, you know, the best media. In fact, you open a newspaper, if you're looking for India, you'll probably see a story about cricket, first and foremost. Uh, secondly, you might you might hear about what we've alluded to earlier in our conversation about some of the social issues that exist. But there's a whole big important part of the Indian narrative that, that we don't often hear about, certainly in mainstream media, which are you know, this, this economic growth story, uh, India's uh, success into space research and other areas of research, and areas where India is excelling, areas of opportunity for partnership and collaboration. And this is an important part of the conversation over a three-week residential program that, that we talk to our students about, our Australian students, when they come to India, uh, expose them to industry experts, to scholars, to policymakers, who can tell them both sides of the Indian story and, and, and give them an informed perspective of what India is about. Of course, it's not all, all confined to the classroom. There's a lot of site visits and um, sightseeing, so site visits to industry uh, and sightseeing to some of the cultural masterpieces that India has to offer. And this balance that we try to achieve over a three-week period often gives more than just a flavour of India to young Australians. In fact, they, it, it gives them an incentive to come back. And we've had, uh, you know, out of the 100-plus students we've had until now, we've had about three or four come back for internships or full semester exchanges because... You know, they love the experience so much. So that's uh, one of our flagship uh, initiatives in terms of the Centre for India Australia Studies. And we look forward to building the India Immersion Program even stronger and working with more students and more Australian partners moving forward. Thank you. Thank you for such an elaborate answer. I, I think the, the education sector partnership between Australia and India has the potential to reform the entire Australia-India relationship. I think there's 
some really exciting flow-on effects of that education sector partnership um, that we're already seeing. My question there then is who stands to benefit? Like when we build this imagination of Australia in India and vice versa, what do you see as the benefits of doing that to the long-term development of both nations? Full of very interesting and thought-provoking questions today, Rachel. Uh, This is another uh, tough one, but I I think the answer can be short and sharp. I think everyone potentially stands to benefit from closer ties. Um, I think it goes without saying that Australians and Australia can benefit uh, with closer ties to India. You know, I, I know you you mentioned uh, the Peter Varghese report and that we might come back to it, but he also alludes to the fact that it's it's only natural that businesses and institutions need to branch out to to other countries. And the next obvious option is India. So, you know, Australia, I think, has been very China-centric for a long period of time. And it's looking at from a number of perspectives, when we're, whether we're looking at scale, whether we're looking at um, the complementarities that exist between our countries, or whether we're looking at simply diversifying our risk, it, it, it makes sense for us to invest in India in the long term. So institutions, businesses, governments, I think closer ties with India from Australia's perspective is only natural and and it's the the next logical step for us to continue pursuing. From India's perspective, I think it's also uh, we're moving forward. We've we've spoken mostly about uh, these economic issues, but we alluded to some of these big social issues. And while it's India's role to, and India sees it as its responsibility to resolve its own social issues. Australia, Australian companies and Australians can play a role in, in educating, you know, millions of India, Indians moving forward as well. Uh, in fact, we do. There are, there are thousands and thousands of Indians that come to Australian educational institutions and, you know, through technology and through physical presence and partnerships and cooperation with Indian universities, these numbers will only increase. So I think uh, closer ties will benefit both countries. Um, and and certainly there are, as I've alluded to and as Peter Ragis alludes to in his report, there are complementarities that exist in this relationship that make it really quite a natural fit. You know, when we're talking about the, the growth story of India and the growing population and the growing young population of India, India is going to need resources, whether it's energy and resources. India is going to need education, uh, both in terms of boosting its services industry, in terms of um, high school, primary and higher education and skills education in order to fuel its economic growth. And Australia can play, play a big part in this as well. So I think it's it's two ways and it can certainly be mutual. And I think that's why in the last five or six years, we've seen a bit of a paradigm shift in the Australia-India story that we haven't seen in recent times. Yeah, it, it's exciting to consider those mutual benefits. I think on the point of the Peter Varghese report, that would be a really good point for us to finish on. Um 
I mean, it's a great report. I remember earlier in the year at AOID discussing how long the report was <laughs> and how I, I don't I don't think any of us had read it in full. Perhaps you have. Um, but a, a memory that I have at my undergraduate graduation ceremony at the University of Sydney, our keynote speaker gave a talk about the, the importance of research and the importance of funding research, um, which was a very apt topic for a university professor to speak about. But he spoke of the social license that research has, um, and especially the social license that universities have. And it's always sparked in me um, a real enthusiasm for the role of universities, as well as the role of, of research reports more broadly, to shape public policy and, and decision-making. And whilst the Peter Varghese report obviously wasn't by a university, I think it's an example of um, a really significant piece of research that has the potential to shape the relationship between Australia and India. So I guess that's a double-barrelled question there. Firstly, could you comment on the significance of that uh, research, but also comment on, in your view, the significance of universities more broadly um, and their role in the ongoing relationship between Australia and India? Yeah, I think uh, these are actually two very well-related, very different questions. Uh, why? Because Peter Varghese's report is far from academic. It's very pragmatic and practical and um, visionary in many respects because it's it's looking forward and considering what India's economy is going to be like, you know, in, in 2035 and how Australia can play a role in uh, in India's growth story, which will benefit India and benefit Australia. So uh, certainly a very practical perspective, but as you said, a very well researched and thought out document in its own right. Um, uh, on, on the first point, I, I think this report uh, sets a roadmap for how Australian, the Australian government and Australian businesses can focus on India. So it not only sets aside or sets out 10 sectors that Australian businesses and the Australian government should focus on in India, but also 10 states uh, which Australian and Australian businesses should focus on. So. India is quite unique in that it's such a vast country and, and such a complicated uh, economy that some of the bigger economies, the state economies in India, will rival other country economies by the time we reach 2035. So to look at India as one country is sometimes a little bit of a misnomer and a mistake that Australian businesses can make. And it's sometimes important to focus on a unique sector and even a unique state to focus on that unique sector. So this uh, report sets out quite a, you know, as you said, it's quite a long report, but it sets out quite a useful roadmap for Australian companies to consider. I think the very launching of this report signals that the Australian government is serious about India. The fact that it, it had bipartisan support, uh, certainly leading up to the election, both governments announced that they are in support of the Peter Varghese uh, report. And I think it signals that Australian government is serious about India and building economic ties. I also think that the release of this report will help build awareness of the opportunities, economic opportunities in India. I think for far too long, every Australian, every Australian business has heard a horror story of how something's gone wrong with a business opportunity or a business partner in India. And I think we don't hear enough about the successes and opportunities 
uh, of business in India or business with India. And this report not only extols the virtues of, of doing business with India, but sets out, as I said, a roadmap of, of where those opportunities might be. I still think there's a lot more scope uh, for institutions like AOID, for government uh, and government departments to, to tell stories of, of what Australian companies have done well and where they have succeeded, because it's these stories that will encourage uh, more individuals to, you know, uh, explore the opportunities in an Indian context. To go to your second point on, on research, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, uh, you know, universities uh, do have an important role to play. And it's not only we hear so much about university rankings um, and the importance of, of publishing and, you know, ticking the right boxes, but uh, it, it's also important to, uh, you know, for research to have impact. And there are a lot of talks about uh, how rankings can and will incorporate impact. And indeed, there are certain rankings that, um, that do look at social and other impact of publications. Um, I actually think this is a unique area that Australian and Indian academics and institutions can collaborate. Uh, because given the Australian expertise uh, amongst scholarship, whether it's in the humanities or the sciences and STEM, etc., there's so much scope to collaborate with Indian institutions uh, and universities to tackle some of these social problems and look at it from a social Im impact perspective. So you're essentially killing two birds with one stone because you can publish high-quality publications in leading academic journals, but also have a, a, a social impact slant or at least vision attached to those particular collaborations and papers. Uh, and I know a number of Australian institutions are looking at that and and certainly the Varghese report um, has, uh, has promoted uh, the fact that we should be investing more in joint research and the Strategic Research Fund does that in the sciences area. I think it would be fantastic to see that even outside of sciences in humanities and business and arts. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's no big bucket of funds there, unfortunately, yet in terms of the bilateral partnership, apart from Australia-India Council grants, uh, which, which one can apply for. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it, it does. It's a great answer. And I think that's a really good takeaway for us to finish this episode with that perhaps the next step for all organisations um, invested in the Australia-India relationship is to invest in more joint research, um, strategic research. Uh, I, I, think, I think that has wonderful potential for the relationship. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Your answers have been so insightful and it's been wonderful to chat to you. Thank you for having me, Rachel. The Australian Council for International Development is holding their national conference 23 and 24 October in Sydney. Join Australia's aid and development community to discuss the biggest issues guided by thought-provoking speakers. The conference will focus on how we can go beyond aid to champion sustainable development cooperation. For tickets, visit acford.asn.au. We'll see you there.